On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Roxanne. And Roxanne was in a physically abusive marriage to a sex addict. It's a story about the realization that you're being abused, overcoming your fear, standing up for yourself, and for your kids. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of narcissistic abuse. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. And now, before we get to our episode with Roxanne, I just wanted to thank everyone in the Narcissist Apocalypse community for listening to the show and sharing your thoughts by email, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And also a reminder, if you have not left us a review on whatever podcast service you use, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, CastBox, etc., please leave us a five-star written review as it helps out the show when it comes to rankings. Now, if you have not been to our website recently, please do go there if you want to be part of our show. Our website is NarcissistApocalypse.com and go there to fill out our guest form. Once you fill out that form, I'll take a look at it. I'll read it. It'll take me, you know, maybe a week, a week and a half, maybe to finally get to all of them. I get a lot of them and I'll email you back and we'll go from there. But the quickest way to be part of the show is to also go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com and to read a letter to your narcissist and be part of our Letters to Our Narcissist compilation episode, we have a voicemail recorder on our website. So to record, go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. It's on the right side of the page. It's always floating around and hard to miss. There's a button there that says Send Voicemail. Press it and away you'll go. We're accumulating these letters to have a volume three of that episode. So send in those voicemails. But if you want me or my old pal Melissa to read your letter instead, just send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com and put letters to my narcissist in the subject line. Other things on our site. We're now offering high-conflict parenting courses that can be found at NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. Yes, we have now partnered with an online parenting company, and many of the courses we are offering were created by a man named Bill Eddy. And if you have listened to an episode last year with a divorce lawyer named Helen, you'll know that Bill Eddy is an expert in dealing with these individuals in court, and he's now helped create many parenting courses to help you through divorce and to help support your children too. These courses are the most widely recognized courses by family courts across the country. So if you want to support the show and are looking for guidance, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. Also, we have a new podcast called Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, which is available for your listening pleasure. We have 10 episodes released so far, and our last episode, which came out on, I think it was Friday, 
uh, was with Elizabeth Barr A, and we discussed covert narcissism. So the therapists and coaches that are on that podcast can also be reached at abusetherapy.org. It is a website we created of therapists and coaches who specialize in narcissistic abuse. So if you need a therapist or a coach, please do go to abusetherapy.org by using one of the therapists or coaches on that website. It helps support the show. But do you know what else helps support the show? Our Patreon. Yes, we started a Patreon. If you want to hear episodes that never made it to air, follow-up episodes with former guests, and much, much more, Join our Patreon. We'll be releasing new content on there every week. So to help support the show, become a patron of our Patreon at patreon.com slash Narcissist Apocalypse. And before we start the show, we're almost there. I just wanted to say I hope everyone out there is doing well and staying safe during these crazy times. I know a lot of us are... Uh, at home, uh, homeschooling uh, children, and you're also working jobs. Some of us don't have jobs. It's a very difficult time. So hopefully everyone out there is staying safe and being as healthy as they can be. Uh, If you're with an abuser in this situation and you need help, do call a local domestic violence agency. And if you need emergency help, please do call 911. And now I am going to officially get out of my way and your way. It's time for the show. Here is my conversation with Roxanne. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse. With me today, I have Roxanne. How are you, Roxanne? Good, thank you. How are you? I am good, and you're about to tell us the story of the narcissist in your life. I'm just going to get out of my way, in your way, and thank you very much for sharing your story with us today. The floor is now yours. Okay, so my relationship is just starting to end now after a total of 15 years together. Um, This May, we would have been married 10 years. Um. I mean, as far as my background, I came from a a decent family. I feel like there was some dysfunction in it that maybe led me to get to this point. I always picked bad relationships, but it wasn't like an abusive home. You know, we had a, a, a good upbringing. I had one sister, um, but like I said, kept getting into relationships like this, and this was by far my worst one. Um, I met him and instantly was drawn to him. There was an attraction to him, like I compare it now to, it was probably like being on drugs. It was something like I had to have. And I have no idea why, because looking back, I don't think I ever felt like anything like that. But now knowing it was it was a drug, it was an addiction. When you met him originally, was this like before words were even spoken or like when you saw him, you knew? No, I saw him and was uh, um, instantly, instantly was like, I have to be with that person. And I knew everything about him was bad. He was like your typical bad boy, quote unquote. So you knew of him? Yeah, we worked together. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And we started dating. Um, 
I saw the first signs of aggression the first time that we had gone out. We had gone to a St. Patrick's Day parade. He was just getting out of a relationship. I was just getting out of my first marriage. Um, and I had asked him if he had missed his ex-girlfriend, which I think I felt like that was an okay question to ask someone. They're just getting out of a relationship. You know, I don't know. I looking back, cause I'm trying to replay everything in my mind now being that it's so new. It, you know, was that wrong to ask that question? I don't think that it was wrong to ask, but it's, it's triggered him and he flipped out completely on me and became very violent. Being that that relationship was so new and that had happened, I should have walked away right then. I have no idea why I didn't. No idea. But talk, talk about a red flag. That was huge, you know. I got beat up for asking a simple question. So... I guess that was my first red flag, and I ignored it. Um, how did he, he love? How did he love bomb you back in after that? Um, I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. You shouldn't have asked that, though. You know, always he always placed the blame back onto me, no matter what. Even if he apologized, somehow I always ended up apologizing. Also. And I would apologize, uh, you know. I wanted I wanted him back so bad that I did apologize for asking the question or for whatever it was down the line. I always apologized. And when you were um, first meeting him, was he very interested in you at that time in the sense of he was asking you a lot of questions? Like about your um, life and your upbringing and uh, everything that uh, that made you you. Um, I was just leaving um, my first marriage, so he was um, very intent on making sure he destroyed that. It seemed like like I had I had just had a baby too with the the first husband, and that was another bad relationship, not anything like this. He was an alcoholic, blah, blah, blah. And parts of me at that point were like, should I work on that marriage? Because I had just had a baby, but he was trying so hard to make sure that that didn't work and trying to, you know, Oh, he did this. He did this. He did this. Always filling my head. Um, he, yeah, was very inquisitive about, any problems I had growing up, any, you know, do you know what I mean? Any issues I had, if I had an issue with my father, so he could use that. Oh, your father did this, this, and this to you. You don't need him. You've got me. Oh, your mother did this, this, and this to you. And he did that as, as time went on, he did that to all my relationships where eventually by the time this has all just ended, I have no friends. My mother and I just started talking this past Sunday again after four years. He destroyed every relationship in my life by doing that. Isolation is an understatement. Yeah. So after, um, I guess, you guys were together and the first incident of violence occurred, you stayed and 
Um, how did everything move forward after that? I stayed, um, you know, we continued on years past. Um, there was fighting. There was always fighting. And it felt like I was always um, trying to prove myself to him that, you know, I was worthy for him to love me. And um, the other big thing with him was he had a major, major, major sex addiction, which, again, I didn't realize that that's what that was until way, way, way down the road. You know, I thought he was just so attracted to me, but that's not what it was at all. It was a sick addiction. I I think that when you're not a narcissist, and you're living with one or you're dating one and you're getting into a relationship with one, you can't comprehend their level of thinking. You can't comprehend that someone is a sex addict and that they're not having sex with you because they're truly attracted to you or they truly want to be with you. And so from the other person's standpoint, from my standpoint, I was like, oh, he he really likes me. You know what I mean? He didn't really like me. He was using me for every single thing he could possibly use me for. So as the relationship progressed, I just kept getting more and more and more sucked in. Now, fast forward, now we've been together um, five years. He had gotten into some trouble and he ended up going to prison. So when that happened, everything changed. The way he changed towards me changed everything because he needed me. He needed me to take care of his house. He needed me to put money on his commissary. He needed me to come visit him. He needed me for everything. So he asked me to marry him. And I said, yes. And I went to every single visit. I was home for every single phone call. I was at any any place he got transferred to, I went to. I was the only person that visited him. Um, and throughout those visits, it was decided that we were going to get married the day he got out. He was in like a nine month shot camp is what he was, what it was. Um, and so I was planning my wedding, my secret wedding for the day that he came home after he came home. And that's what I did. So I married him the day after he got out of prison and I had sold his house and moved all his stuff into my house. So when he came home, everything was perfect for him, comfortable, so comfortable. And he moved in, and at that point, I was supporting him. And now he had health insurance. <laughs> and I he ended up going to, um, like, a a school, whatever. And so I was, you know, there through that. Um, 
when he finished that, he started his own business. I was there to support him through that, all of it. You know, I just was there through everything. And um, six months after we got married, I ended up getting pregnant. Um, And then six months after I had that baby, I ended up getting sick. So at that point, no one really knew what was wrong with me. He was somewhat supportive during those times in the very beginning of the stages, but the illness went on for seven years, undiagnosed. And by the time I got to the fifth year, he had completely checked out on me. He based, he, he didn't care that I was sick. It didn't matter. And by then I was, pretty much just numb to everything that he was doing and saying to me. He was very critical at home. Um, I had to give up my job. Um, He, you know, he put me down for everything that I did. It didn't matter if I made dinner. He made fun of the dinner. He made fun of me. He just everything out of his mouth was critical and degrading. And if I ever called him out on it, sorry, if I ever called him out on it, he would say, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. And I guess during this phase of you're you're being devalued heavily here, um, do you realize what's going on? Do you understand what's happening? No. So how, how are you feeling during all of that and... Uh, Are you in like a major depression uh, during this time? I was really anxious. I know that. I know like I was so anxious and I could never really understand why I was so anxious. Like I always felt like I was having a panic attack because I think I, I didn't know what was ever going to happen and I never knew, you know, what he was going to say and his words were so hurtful. It was like, I felt like I was always being crushed, you know, until I think I became numb. And then I had my two boys. So it was like, I just had all my focus on them. And I was also fighting my own disease. So it was like, I was trying, I was trying, I felt like I was sinking is how I felt. I felt like I was sinking. And at what point, I guess, while that kind of that was going on, are are you, um, you're sinking, but you're also, I guess, immersed in, in your children's lives. Is that what is during this time helping you cope? Yeah, that they were like the only thing that kept me going like every day. It was, oh, he did nothing like as far as anything around the home. So it was me taking care of the house, me taking care of the kids, you know, getting them up and ready for school and Like, it didn't matter if I was having a bad day, if I was sick, it didn't matter. Like, I was still up, crack of dawn, getting them up, getting them breakfast, getting them out the door, you know, making sure they had everything they needed. They were really involved in sports, so, you know, doing all of that, just whatever. And it was like, it was just like a a way to live. Like, I just kept going. I just kept pushing. And did you ever reach out to anyone uh, during this time or was all, all your family and friends pretty much, uh, you were completely isolated during that time? 
slowly during this time, I was slowly getting isolated. So one by one, it was like they were dropping off, you know? Um, and I did have a therapist up until a couple months ago. Um, and every once in a while, it was like I'd, I'd see a spark of myself come out because I knew, like I knew this wasn't right. I knew this isn't how I was supposed to be living. You know, sometimes I'd see other people talk about their husbands and saying things like, oh, you know, he made dinner tonight or something like that. And I was like, is that how it's supposed to be? And I would question it, you know, like, is this wrong? So then I guess I started to question things a little bit. And the and the way he was acting, too, was starting to get more a little more distant with me. Probably, I'd say, um, probably around three years ago, where basically he was just doing his thing and I was doing my thing at home. You know, he was gone the majority of the day. If somebody called at night, he'd say, I'll be right back, and he'd leave. And I wasn't allowed to ask where he was going. I wasn't allowed to ask what he was doing, you know, nothing. But yet, if I left the house, I'd get 15 phone calls. Where are you? What are you doing? When are you coming home? So you're being controlled. He's doing whatever he wants to do. If you put up any sort of stink uh, or question anything, you'll be reprimanded. Um, verbally for even insinuating that he's up to no good. Right. And so when you're going through that devaluation stage, uh, when do tactics ever change? Does he stop love bombing you after a while? That that, that, that doesn't even matter to him anymore? And uh, do, do <clears throat> tactics start changing throughout this time? Yeah, I don't really think he ever love bomb me unless he thought I was leaving, I guess. Maybe that's, you know, that's when it, a couple times in the relationship, if I, you know, said I was leaving, something like that earlier on. And then again at the prison time, but not, I don't really feel like he was ever overly like, oh, I have to be so overly loving to her. Like he really treated me like garbage. I mean, and I think it only got worse as time progressed. And what was the biggest fear in your mind if you were to leave? I don't even know, really. I don't know. I felt like for so long I was on a ledge. I was afraid of him. And I... I don't... I, I was afraid of him. I think that's just why. Mm -hmm. And so when, um, after that five-year period, how did things go after that? Well, up until my youngest son started kindergarten, right? When he, and, and see, that was the other thing. I had gone out of work, like, around the time he was six months. So he was home with me for the the first five years of his life. So I had him, you know, so it was like, I always had something to, to d deter my mind from what was really going on, I guess. 
and then all of a sudden I was alone and he, and I, like I said, I, at that point here I am now going undiagnosed five years. I'm getting worse. No one knows what's wrong with me. And he had said to me like shortly after he started kindergarten, I'm not going to lay around here with you. I'm going on with my life. You can do what you want. And I was like, what? Like, okay. And so, um, and that's what he did. That's when it, it really got worse when he really started going out more. And I started to suspect that he was cheating on me then. And I knew I'd never catch him. You know, um, I would, I would look at his Facebook page and a couple times there was, you know, a couple things that crossed my mind. I had one of my, I did at this time I had a, maybe five friends. One of the girls I had called this one girl to ask how she knew him went right back and told him it started a huge war. Who did I think I was, you know, just a huge war. Um, and, and soon the relationship with that, that girl got destroyed because he, he felt threatened by her. If she had the guts to call someone, then I couldn't be friends with her. So that relationship got destroyed. Um, and he had made a comment about not taking any pictures and posting them on Facebook. Then, so it, you know, it started to, to register in my head. Like he doesn't have any pictures of me. Like, you know, he, if I put something on Facebook, he doesn't like it. Like he's my husband. Why? You know, I don't know. I just felt like he was like acting like I didn't exist. Um, we didn't go out. There were no date nights, nothing like that. We never went on vacation. We never went anywhere. We never did anything. Um, so it was either me and the kids doing something or nothing. That was it. And, and still the sex addiction was still huge. Like I was still expected to have sex at command dinner on the table, made him breakfast to take to work, made him lunch to take to work. Like I was a slave. That's what I was. I was a slave. I mean, that's really what I was. (laughs) So, um, I think I just became numb. Um, And then two years ago, I got a diagnosis. Still, he wanted nothing to do with anything that had to do with that. Um, I had to go through some testing to get approved for a a treatment that I would receive three days a month for the rest of my life. It's a plasma infusion. Um, So I started going for that. And I would go, um, it's like four hours from my home. So I would go. And he didn't come with me. So people were saying to me, he didn't go with you. What do you mean he didn't go with you? And, you know, then that was like a triggering in my head. Like, you know, he should have been there with me. Like, that was scary. I was having an infusion for, you know, my first time. Like, he should have been there with me. And he wasn't. And he would never call when I was there. I mean, it's three days out of the month and it's seven hours each day. That's a long time, you know, never call to see if I was okay. Um, ask how things were going, nothing. And here I am four hours away from home too. 
but the more that I started to feel better, it was like the more that I started to wake up and the more I started to think these things aren't right. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be treated like this. And I didn't speak for such a long time because of the reality that somebody maybe would have said to me, those things aren't right. Those things aren't right. He shouldn't be doing those things to you. But the more I started to feel better, the more I started talking to people, random strangers I would tell my story to just to get a validation that, no, this isn't right. So, um, <clears throat> uh, say November of 2018, he couldn't find his phone missing a couple days. I was home. It was, I was cooking and he had the boys. Um, I went to move his jacket and the phone was in the jacket. And I'd never gone through his phone. It was like, like that was like a mortal sin if I touched his phone. And I never did. But something told me to, and I did. And I found message after message after message between him and other girls and multiple girls. And I've been cheated on before. And my always initial reaction is to go and say, Oh, I found out you were cheating on me. And that, you know, doesn't ever really work out, especially with someone like this, who's a million times worse, worse than any relationship I've been in. I know what's coming. The lies are coming immediately oh you misunderstood what you read you know like I mean come on I couldn't take the lies so I uh took pictures of all the text messages and I just decided to be quiet and that went on for another year of me being quiet I I just observed him And I went through that phone every single day. He would go to bed at night and I would crawl across the floor like a ninja and I would get a hold of his phone and I would go through and I would read the text messages and I would take the pictures and I'd go back to bed and I would act like the best wife ever my whole personality with him changed. I acted like the most loving, caring wife in the world. I had the sex at the drop of the dime like he wanted me to, never said no. I was like wife of the year, just so he wouldn't be suspicious of me being on to him. Um, and then finally I got the courage to call the numbers, to call these girls. And... <sighs> I thought the whole time that, that he had relationships like, like girlfriends, you know, and I thought, um, in my head, he couldn't deal with me being sick and that's fine. I'm just going to let him go. I think maybe that was before I realized how sick he really was. And when I called the, the one girl that was like in there in the phone a lot, he she she was admitting to the text messages, but she wasn't admitting to him. Like, no, that's not him. That's not him. So I sent her his picture, 
and he had used a different name. <laughs> and then she told me that he was paying for sex. And then that's when I realized, that's when I just realized, like, I'm in a whole different ballgame here. This is not even normal. This is way more than abnormal. So these weren't regular, not going to say regular. Uh, no. These were, these were sex workers that he was texting. Yeah. So what happened from there? Yeah. Um, I still didn't say anything. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know. I honestly didn't know for a very long time because um, because mostly I knew that I couldn't compete with his his lies and his his mind manipulation that he was going to try on me. I just wanted to make sure that I was so super strong that when it happened, I was prepared for everything, that I knew everything. So then that's when I started studying his mindset and I started really paying attention, you know, to um, just his behavior and the way that he he acted and just the things that he did. And um, I started reading and I just tried to heal every part of myself. I tried to figure out how I got there. I tried to figure out, you know, what I missed in the past relationships that I should have healed before I moved on to the next relationship, just everything that I should have healed that I never did. So break that, so break that down for us. I mean, there, there's a lot, there's a lot like, I mean, like I said, I was in an, I was in an abusive relationship in high school. I never dealt with that. That's number one. I should have dealt with that. I never dealt with my failed marriage. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I never, my first failed marriage. I just moved right on. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I ever loved myself enough, you know? Um, so did you have, I guess, self-esteem and self-worth issues before even getting into those other relationships, just coming out of your family relationships? I had an eating disorder in high school. I was bulimic in high school and probably started there, you know? So you had all Um, this, all the self-worth uh, I call it self everything um, issues, and so when you started to discover those and work on those, how did you, um, I guess, start pointing these things out or remember? Did you start journaling uh, things so they, these things were uh, in writing so you knew they were real while they were happening, or did you just put them everything to memory? Just to memory. Um... I, like I said, I was reading a lot and I would write a lot in the books that I was reading. Um, well, which books were you reading? I don't, I was just going to say, I don't know if I'm supposed to say any authors oh, or yeah, not. Yeah, go but, for it. Go for it. Um, R.H. Sin. Do you, have you ever heard of him? No. Well, it was like the weirdest thing I was walking through Barnes and Noble with my son and the 
book was like on the little island and you know he my son is little so he's like come on come on come on and the the cover caught my eye and it was just random and I was like oh he's not going to let me look at this I'm just going to get it. it you know I just grabbed it and it was literally like that book was meant to come into my hands because that author has saved me like anyone who really has these kind of men in their lives or these kind of partners in their lives should read him really so just a random a random walking through a bookstore got yeah. you, got you and and you opened it up and then you started reading and you're like this is who I am married to. Yeah, and so I just started buying all of his books and was reading and um you know, I branched out and got a couple other ones, but basically just kept reading him and just kept, you know, really just like his words were just resonating with me on so many levels. And if, if they really did, I would take a picture of them and have it in my phone and reread it. You know what I mean? And just kept getting these words into my head that this was not right. You know what the things that were happening were not right. This was not how I was supposed to be treated. And like I said, the whole sex addiction thing, I guess I didn't really realize what a big part of narcissism that is until, I mean, until he was gone, really, I didn't realize that, but it is, and it's really sick. And honestly, when he was in, this is a, another red flag that I, I ignored. I didn't miss it. I ignored it. But when he was in the shock camp, they have like the, you know, the groups that they have to go to. And I remember going to the visit and asking you know, how are the groups going? And he was like, oh, they told me I'm a sex addict. And I remember probably having a jaw-dropped face looking at him and him saying, just kidding. Just kidding is never just kidding. They're not just kidding. They are not just kidding. They told him that. I know they did. They did. <laughs> and, I, and that stuck in my head all those years, so many years. And I think admitting a lot of stuff, <clears throat> excuse me, admitting a lot of stuff has helped me heal a lot too. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I accept responsibility for the fact that I ignored red flags. I ignored the red flags. It was my choice to ignore them. It's not my fault that this happened to me, but it was my choice to ignore things. And, and I was, won't ignore him again. <laughs> was that something um, that was hard for you to come to terms with? Like, because you know, different everyone has different um, points of view when it comes to responsibility in these situations. So, was that something easy for you to uh, deal with in, in the fact that you uh, are taking responsibility or want to take responsibility? Um. A little bit in the beginning because of my older son that's not his, but he, you know, he lives with me and he's was a big part of all of this. And it was my job to protect him, you know, and I kept saying that in the beginning, like, unfortunately, he's seen and knows a lot about this whole situation. Um but it got so crazy in the last six months that 
I had to make the decision to be as honest with my children as I could on their each separate level of age. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and so, I mean, that's, that was just a reality and that had to happen, but it was my job to protect him when he was little and knowing that I, I ignored things that I knew, I knew what was wrong. You know what I mean? I knew that he was doing bad things. I knew that he wasn't a nice person. I knew that he said bad things about other people. I knew that he said bad things to me. I knew that it probably wasn't the right way to have sex with someone the way he was having sex with me. You know, I knew that probably getting married and not telling anyone the day after he got out of prison wasn't a good idea. I didn't know that me and my kids would be in this much danger. I didn't know that. If I knew that, I wouldn't have ignored the red flags. So, you know. But, so, so, what was your relation, your son's relate, your your oldest son's relationship with him, and was that physical or anything along those lines? And what is your relationship with your son now? Well, they were very close. They weren't very close in the beginning. He was he was kind of mean to him because he was well. Here, this is kind of a two part, I guess. But he was kind of mean to him because he was chunky when he was little, but. Do you know what I mean by chunky? Like he, that pre-puberty boy, like, you know, that baby fat in the stomach. That was me. So, right. Me too. I guess it's not just boys. I shouldn't say that because that was me. And that's why I was chubby and kids made fun of me, you know? And then that's where the eating disorder came from. Then you hit puberty and you slim down and then everyone wants to be your friend, I guess, you know? So anyways, my son was like that. And so he was kind of not... I'm not going to say mean, but his joking, we'll say, you know, is what he was always doing with him. At the time, I was still talking to my mother, and he used to, like, play wrestle with him, and she always used to say to me, you're going to let him put his big legs on him? And even when she wasn't talking to me these last four years, I could hear her saying that in the back of my head, which was probably for a reason. So, um... The older my son got, the more athletic he got. And it was almost like he wanted to be the one to say, I got him involved in this. I got him involved in that. He likes to take credit for things, you know. Um, <clears throat> then they became close the last couple of years. But the way that he acts is... Um, like he's unstoppable and like he can do no wrong and, and like he can do whatever he wants. And so he likes to act like he's one of the boys too. You know what I mean? You can, obviously you can tell my son's a teenager, right? So he wants to act like he's one of them. So he's trying to show off in front of them all the time. You know what I mean? To get the other kids to like him. So I started to notice that type of stuff happening, you know what I mean? And I was like, that's not right either. And he always um, discarded my youngest son, which is his son, who doesn't call him daddy. He always called him by his name, which started to bother him. (laughs) But I think it made him treat him even worse, Mm -hmm. who also the little one now is at that, 
prepubescent stage where he's got the little belly. So this is now this past October. Now a whole year has almost gone by since I found out about the cheating. And um, my son wanted to show him his Halloween costume. He was gone all day. Um, He was waiting for him. He put the costume on. He was hiding. And he came out from behind the couch and he says to him, what are you, a pregnant clown? He was a killer clown, but he was making fun of him. I watched my son's face crush. I watched his heart break. I watched, I watched it. Literally, if I could have seen the inside of him, it w- I would have watched it all shatter. And he went and hid behind the couch and took the costume back off. And... That was the first time I ever really stood up to him because I'd been crushed like that for so many years. And I guess you couldn't crush me anymore. But once he started to do it to him, it was like this like beast in me came out. I ended up not talking to him for a whole week. And he finally came to me with this like... I don't know, some kind of attitude. Like I was going to apologize to him for not talking to him for the last week. And I guess I said to myself, this is it. Either you're going to say what you know and come out with everything. And, and this is it. This is the time. Or you're going to apologize for not talking to him for the last week. And this shit's going to keep going on. And so I did. I just said, you know, I'm, I'm done with you. I've had enough. I, I know you've been cheating on me and I have the proof and blah, blah, blah. And once that all happened, he spiraled way out of control. Things got so crazy. It, I, the last six months has been a whirlwind of nightmares. It's been insane. Um, he tried brainwashing my kids. They had, they had seen so much of what he held me hostage in the bathroom for like days straight. He would every morning, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you about what happened. I want to talk to you about what happened. I already knew at this point not to say anything. I knew I was going to have to do no contact. I, I knew the lies were going to come. I knew what he was going to say. You know, it was, I didn't do it. It wasn't this. It wasn't that. I didn't even want to hear any of it at this point. I had the proof. You know what I mean? I talked to these women myself. So th- there was no reason for them to lie to me. They had no idea anything. You know, there was nothing. I would be stupid if I believed anything he said at this point. I would look like a total goofball. So anytime he tried to talk to me, I just wouldn't answer. But if I didn't answer, he locked me in the bathroom. So I had to tell my son what was going on because I was getting locked in the bathroom every day. Well, he was so scared to go to school. He was texting me while he was in school until he knew that he was out of the house. And this went on for months. It went on for months every day. Um, then I noticed he was, um, he had money at the house, like a significant amount of money. And I noticed he was taking it out of the house and in a backpack every day. And I guess I started to panic because I felt like 
he always said, that's our money, that's our money, that's our savings, blah, blah, blah. And now he was taking it all. And I felt entitled to it, I guess. And, and so I took the money and I was I was going to like hold it. My plan was stupid. I know that now. But my I was going to hold the money hostage and just say, give me half of the money and we can just go our separate ways. But that didn't work out like that. He had a camera on me on the house. And he barreled into the driveway, and I was in my car. He was trying to break the windows. To, and this is when I realized how bad his money addiction was. He was trying to break my car windows to get to me. My son was screaming at the car window for me not to get out of the car. And it was so crazy. Like, my son's face literally like morphed back into when he was four years old. And I was like, I can't even believe this is happening right now. Like it was the most scariest, horrible thing ever until I got, he got the key fob. He didn't even care about getting at me at that point. He got the money out of my car and I had gotten out of the car and gotten a bag out of my car that had other money in it that he didn't know. He saw it, grabbed me, and started flinging me around the driveway like a rag doll. I was going up and back and forth over his shoulders in the air. I can't even tell you how many times. And then all of a sudden, he was on the ground. And for days, I thought it was me. I thought I knocked him down. And I didn't know how I did it. I just thought I had this superhuman strength because he's like three times the size of me. And my son yelled, run, mom, run. So I ran into my bedroom. Seconds later, he came through the sheetrock of the wall, not even the door, just the sheetrock to get to me. At this time, I had called my father. My father's the only person that was still speaking to me at this point. And he ended up getting him to go stay in a hotel that night. He got his money. He got everything. He took it all. Um, it was a stupid plan. I don't even, I don't even care about the money now. The only thing I care about is my freedom. It wasn't me that knocked him down. It was my son, which made me feel like crap forever because my, my son tackled him to the ground to get him off of me. Like that should have never happened. Never should have never happened. And he still didn't leave after that. He wouldn't leave. He just continued to torture me. Um, Like I said, I kept talking to the boys about the way that he was acting because we hadn't really seen this craziness out of him until this point. The only thing that we'd really seen was like the name calling, the devaluing, very critical, of, you know, those types of things. Um, the controlling, but it, it was more like passive controlling. It wasn't flat out, you can't do this. So we hadn't really seen this type of stuff until he unraveled. 
And when you said um, when you said that he was brainwashing the kids, what was he doing? Well, then he started telling them that mommy's crazy. Mommy's trying to take all of the money. Um, he he was even saying to me, he but he was saying things like, "Oh, you were so sick, you didn't even take care of the kids." And then I was like, "Wait, did that happen?" Like so much questioning my reality that. Then I was asking my son, was there a time that I didn't take care of you? Did I take care of you the whole time I was sick? Like, I didn't know. Like, so you were being, that's a hor- you, you were being gaslit heavily at this point now. Horribly. Like the, the, in, in the meantime, not only that, then I'm sending my son, um, like definitions of gaslighting so he can understand what's happening to us because, He's like, yeah, mom, you took care of us. You always took care of us. Why are you letting him do this to you? And I'm like, what the hell is happening to me? Like, like, I would leave therapy and call her and be like, but wait, I am really in an abusive relationship, right? Like, I didn't know. Like, I really didn't know what was real and what wasn't. I didn't know. And so eventually this uh, this continues for a little bit uh, longer. And is there, I guess, a final straw? Uh, or, or there's more that happens um, in between here and with the final straw? He stayed until... Well, my thinking was, let's get through the holidays. That's what I was thinking. He kept saying he wanted to talk to me about what happened. I want to talk to you about what happened. And like I said, I didn't want to talk. So um, I felt like the only way he was going to, only way that I was going to be free of him was if he were the one to serve me with the divorce papers. I felt like if I did it, it was going to set him off in another type of way where he was even more crazed. Like I felt like he had to think that he, it was his idea. So it's kind of waiting for that, like, but then there kind of was that hovering stage where he just kind of was like hovering and like wouldn't, wouldn't stop. Like, I love you. Um, everything that I do is for this family. I just want my family. But that's when he said that he wanted to go to therapy and he wanted to go to my therapist. And I was like, I don't think that's really a good idea, you know? And I had talked to her about it and she was like, well, I can do it to kind of buy you some time because she knew that I wasn't in the safest situation. And I was like, I don't think it's a good idea. What if he manipulates you? You know what I mean? What if he gets into your mind? And then we, and then our relationship is ruined. And this is a therapist of like 15 years. So I have like a built relationship with her. No, that won't happen. That won't happen. Well, it happened. And, and I don't see her anymore. I, I said that I didn't, after he served me with the divorce papers, he did serve me with the divorce papers in February. He still stayed here for a whole nother, um, until when the, the, the pandemic started that Monday. So the Monday after the whole pandemic started, he moved out. But I had said to her, I don't feel comfortable with him coming. I don't, you know, I think it's a conflict of interest. 
for us both to be seeing you. And now he has served me with divorce papers, so there's really no point in it. And um, and she told me that with everything being closed, she's having difficulty finding him a therapist. And so he's going to continue seeing her until they can find him one. And that really hurt me. Like, I felt really, 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 really hurt by that. Yeah, you, I, I'm not exactly sure what the law is, but I'm sure you could uh, call a board of, on, on that one because that's not right. It's really unethical. I know it is. Yeah. And very, very unethical. You know, like at best, I felt like she should have said my loyalty lies here because she's been my client for so many years or whatever. Or, you know, here's some names here. Call these people. I'm sorry that, you know, I can't see you anymore. Like, it's a conflict of interest. That's all she had to say. But, nope. And, like, that was a huge break in my trust in someone, too, Mm -hmm. you know? So when that happened, uh, the divorce process was already happening. Um, yeah. Did, so you, that, did so, you did you feel relief, or did you at that point where you, did you feel alone? Well, like and he said, no. I was relieved as soon as I got the divorce papers. I was like, thank God. But then he then he didn't go, and he was saying that he served me with a divorce to get a reaction out of me because I hadn't talked to him about anything that happened, and so he still wasn't going. And, um, like I said, it was right when the whole pandemic started and he had come home and, um, he had said, well, there was a girl that, um, I left this, um, left this out. There was one girl that was trying to help me and she lived across the street from me and he found out. And shortly after, her house got spray-painted, vandalized. And I don't even live, like, I live in, like, there's deer running in my backyard. So I don't live in an area where that happens. (laughs) And, I mean, we can pretty much conclude who did it, you know? And that's, I mean, if he's paying for sex, you know what kind of people he's hanging around with. So, I mean, two and two, you know? So her and I have been, like, not talking like, so people know, you know what I mean? It's secretly because we don't want to make any problems for each other. Anyways, I made a comment on, I think her Facebook page and I had deleted him, but he was having people watch my page and he came home and was like, you're still friends with her. You're still friends with her. And I was like, what are you even talking about? And he was like, that's it. I'm done with you. And he packed his stuff and he said he was going to stay in an apartment, which even then I still wasn't like, this isn't over. I know it's not over. It's not over yet. And then of course the pandemic started and everything closed. So now there's no courts open or anything. So I only had time to get my reply in for the divorce and then everything's on hold now. Um, the, he packed two suitcases. This was another eye opener for me after the fact. He packed two suitcases and he has nothing left in my house. You can't be with someone and have a life for 15 years and move in one night with two suitcases. 
there is, he has no roots with me. You know, that's why I don't really exist. Really, I don't exist. In his life, I really didn't exist to, the, to anyone else. He just had a room. Basically. Yeah. Some drawers in a closet, you know. Um, so I d- laugh. D- does he still, uh, has he been in contact with your kids? Well, I left, um, so that was on a Monday, that Thursday, I left for an appointment and I, um, the kids were here and I told them, you know, don't answer the door, don't answer the phone. My older one panicked because he kept calling like repeatedly 14 something times, you know, and he ended up saying I wasn't here. Well, I got out of my appointment and he was in the parking lot blocking, blocking me in saying that he was coming to the house to get his stuff. And I was like, now's not a good time. You know, I'll, I'll let you know when I'm home and then you can get your stuff because I wanted someone here because I didn't know what he was going to do. You know, I didn't know how he was going to act. Well, within 10 minutes, I got, I went up on the sidewalk, got out. I was going to pick up prescriptions within 10 minutes my son calls me and says, he's in the house. How did he get in? We changed the garage code. I had my side door barricaded. So they didn't know how he could have gotten in. So I get home. I see the side door open. So I'm like, oh, he just pushed through the barricade, whatever. So now he leaves and I say, he didn't really take much. He um, he left like a couple other shirts here. So he was saying that he's coming back for the shirts. So, um, I said to my son, let's go out and shut the door. So we go out, door's not shutting, door's not shutting, door's not shutting. He says, mom, it's off the hinges. What? He kicked the door in. He broke the whole door frame. He says he even took the screws. So I ended up calling the police. I call the police. The police come. And I shouldn't have been shocked, but I was right then. And I think that was like the second time that I cried during all of this because it was, I realized no, I wasn't going to get any help. I'm doing all of this. I have this psycho sociopath in my life. I have kids. I have myself. And no one's going to help me. He was like, well, he does live here. So technically he has the right to break in his door. And I was like, what? What? And I go, well, what am I supposed to do with this door now? And he goes, put a two by four over it. So I said, are you going to fill out a report? Well, yeah, I have to fill out a report every house I go to. So he filled out the report. And I guess he called him to ask what his side of the story was. And he must have realized that he was probably not all there. So he ended up giving me a bunch of domestic violence information. And he was like, just lock your windows, lock your doors. We both know what happened here. If he comes back, call 911. But, um, and as far as seeing my kid, he didn't come back or do anything like that again. But, um, as far as seeing my kids, he, the older one doesn't want to go. The little one doesn't want to go without the older one. So the older one went the one time for the day and then he came home. When he came home, the little one wanted to come home, but was supposed to spend the night there. I called to check on him. He said he wanted to come home, and that sent my ex off into 
an uproar, blaming me, saying that I wanted him to come home. I didn't. He doesn't feel comfortable there. You know, he it's awkward for him. He This is new. And that was the last time he saw them, and that was the last time he talked to me. So that was three weeks ago. And how are your children doing now with uh, out three weeks? Are they asking for him or no? No, not at all. It's really nice in the house, actually. it's um, There's no tension here. We have, like, a really good routine. It's very peaceful here. Um, like, I don't know. I've, I've said this, like, repeatedly. Like, the whole world is learning how to isolate, and I'm finally able to breathe. But it's true. Like, I know once everything is open back up again and the courts are open, I'm going to have a whole nother battle to fight. But right now, like for the first time in so long, I feel like I can breathe. Mm -hmm. And it's so like stupid things that I didn't even realize I wasn't doing. Like I'm staying up watching TV because I can use the remote. I wasn't even allowed to use the stupid remote. Like how stupid. (sighs) It's it's not stupid. I mean, you were you were um, in a, a prison. Um, yeah. And uh, now the warden, the evil warden, is out of the house, and um, it's going to be a house again. It's not mm-hmm. going to be a jail. It's going to be a house again, and it's something to look forward to. Um, and as far as uh, finding a therapist again, have you been looking? And has that been a tough search? I haven't been looking because um, I kind of feel like I helped myself more so anyway, number one. And number two, I really feel like if I went to a therapist, it would have to be someone that really specialized in narcissism to just help me expand my knowledge there. Have, have I you, don't want... Have you... Uh, did you call any of those domestic violence agencies? No, I didn't. So I would say call them because, you know, what you've been dealing with has been very <clears throat> difficult. You have no idea what's going to happen after the fact when it comes to court and stuff. So it's probably, you know, going and um, getting like an advocate from one of those agencies and them pointing you in the right direction. Um, yeah. you know, because the, you're dealing with someone who's, uh, has violent tendencies. So I would go through that route with them, uh, because they'll, you know, if they'll make sure as best they can, uh, that you're going to go through all the proper channels to keep yourself, uh, safe. Um, whereas, you know, going through just a therapist that might've happened, but you're dealing with someone who could fly off the handle. So, yeah, uh, I don't, I feel like I outgrew that anyway at this point. You know what I mean? Like I did plan on calling there just with everything being just so shut down. It was kind of just like back burner. Like I'm, I'm very overwhelmed. I'm not going to lie. I'm very overwhelmed. My lawyer is very good, mm-hmm. but like he keeps giving me all this homework, quote unquote, and it's really overwhelming. Like, okay. And as far because, as, as far as your kids, um, are you going to be getting, uh, them help? Yeah, they're going to, my kids are going to need a lot of help, I think, you know, really. I think the older one more so even than the little one. Like, the little one is, I think, always was able to see through him to an extent. Mm -hmm. 
And, and I, go ahead. No, no, continue. Sorry. I was just going to say, I just think that the older one, I think it's like a second betrayal. You know what I mean? Like he felt betrayed by his own dad. Now this is happening. Like it, even though I'm trying to teach him, it's hard at that with that my, at that level to grasp like how can someone be like this i'm having a hard time understanding how can someone be like this you know what i mean yeah it's not an easy thing to uh, fully comprehend especially when you're a child so it's going to take a lot of uh, therapy and understanding and talking it out uh, for him to get to where he needs to be and for you as well and I hope uh, all of you get to where you need to uh, be. Um, so I had a question that was related to this, but unrelated. So I just wanted to ask before we ended the show, um, which was the cash in the house. Why was there so much cash in the house? Because he had his own businesses, like five different businesses. So he didn't want to use the bank, obviously. Uh, okay, for, okay. You know, I, I just like I okay. <laughs> I got it. Yeah. I got it. So um, I guess before you know we end up the show, um, is there anything more you want to add, or is there any words of wisdom you want to give uh, people out there who are listening? Well, I definitely would suggest reading. The author, R.H. Sin. That's number one. And, I mean, for so long, so long, I felt like, like I said, I was on, on a ledge, in a cage, and I was never getting out. But you can get out. If I can get out of this craziness... Anyone can get out. I can promise you that. And the the feeling that I have now, like as crazy as this all is and as much of a fight as I have ahead of me, just the fact, I don't even care about that money now. I did in the beginning. I'm not going to lie. I did. But I don't care about it now. My freedom, the way that I feel now, I'm like, I joke and say, (laughs) I'm like a little girl at a sleepover at night because I'm like watching TV and using the remote like it's some big deal and it's not. But that feeling like of my freedom is so worth taking that risk to to not be afraid. That's my words of wisdom. Well, Roxanne, I thank you and I'm honored that you came to share your story with me and everyone out there today. And um, I look forward to speaking with you in the future and doing a little bit of a follow-up to find out what's kind of going on um, with uh, court and everything that's going on with your family and how everyone's doing. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for for being here uh, with me today. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And for everyone else out there who is listening, I hope you have a good night.